Hi, everyone. I'm Michael Connor, and this is the Rhizome Podcast, sometimes called Rhizome Rare, Episode 3. I'm here with my colleague Aria Dean. Hello. And artist Joshua Citarella. Hi. Josh has been working on a Rhizome commission this fall, building on his research on his 2018 PDF, Politogram and the Post Left, continuing that research into new forms of um, radical political thought emerging among Generation Z on the internet. And um, we are here to talk about After the End of History, which is an event we had on Saturday at the New Museum, where we brought together three of the people from Josh's research, ages 16 to 19, to share some micro lectures, basically on their vision of the next 25 years. The last time we were in this room, we were discussing Politogram and the Post Left as one of the best links of 2018, which is the topic of episode um, two of our podcast. And I think that PDF that you released last year has sort of continued to inspire lots of discussion and, you know, really formed the basis for a lot of the work that we've been doing this year as part of our InfoWars theme, uh, which looks at political thought emerging online, new forms of radicalism, um, especially among Generation Z. So, yeah, I guess we'll dive into the content of the event itself, I think, in just a second. But actually, the place that I wanted to start today's conversation before we get there is um, is that really all of this work that you've done, um, which is, um, you know, looking at political communities on Instagram and then considering the role of uh, TikTok in shaping political thought among young people, a lot of it revolves around the, around the question of platforms and how platforms shape political speech and expression and community. Um, and I really have been interested in your contention that, you know, we're going into this really crucial time politically in the next couple of years. I think politics is really at the forefront of everyone's mind, and it feels like all culture is sort of dominated by it. And, and your contention is that we have to kind of go into this forthcoming moment with the platforms we have. It's not going to, we're not going to be able to do away with the Facebooks or Instagrams or whatever else. I wanted to like kind of keep that central idea in mind as we go through today's discussion because, you know, as Rhizome, as an internet culture-oriented organization, platforms are so key to our own thinking. But as a sort of starting point, I wanted to actually go back to what I think was some kind of genesis of all of this, which was Tumblr. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in your PDF, you talk about how you've been following viral teens on on the internet you know, <laughs> since your days of the jogging. And um, because now that period, it seems so remote already, I wonder if you could talk about, like, what what was it like to follow those accounts and begin to realize like how much of the online content that was you know so widely consumed was being generated by people that were like 13 years old or something yeah maybe as a uh, a call back to the second episode of the rise Home podcast there was some conversation i think that dean had summarized uh, of this kind of like prefix suffix pairing of prototyping subcultures online kind of quickly exhausted itself in the kind of clickbait economy of people would try to astroturf a genre of music when the songs hadn't been made yet or something like that. And that way of thinking, I think, was really important and and essential to how Tumblr operated. And somewhere along the line, maybe it's 20, maybe it's 2014, 15, that that kind of tapers off and that, that way of using the internet wasn't as common anymore and everything was kind of grouped into these uh, news feeds, um, primarily through Facebook, which I think just just ate up all the other platforms. But then when I was when I was exploring really deep into Instagram, and I think maybe the best example of this that we saw 
in our slideshow on Saturday was the meta left, which was not something that had a kind of underpinning of theoretical thought behind it. It was a type of politics that was kind of being sandboxed in the meme that they were that kind of uh, summarizing what one of our participants kind of concluded the meeting with a lot of the proposals that have been given for Gen Z people who are deeply pessimistic about climate change seem uh, insufficient to scale to the task. And so in these spaces, they're trying to prototype some vision of the future, some potential way forward. And that kind of prefix suffix pairing of things like Seapunk uh, probably is the most notorious example, but uh, Witch House, Pale Goth, all of these kinds of things. Those are, I think, my, my favorite references for it. Um, doom Ecology, Metal Left, uh, Monarcho Syndicalism, all of these kind of the, the things that seem, you know, silly and implausible and, and are kind of far out there. But um, eventually, some of them kind of through this kind of generative. Uh, combination game of pairing variables get close enough to real world politics and gain traction and then you can build build real movements in these spaces um so what, you, what you're saying in a way is like what you're seeing on instagram with the coining of these like really specific and granular ideologies is in a way like inheriting the way that hashtags merged in the tumblr culture that teenagers were kind of creating eight years ago or something. Yeah, it's, I think it's something about, one, just the way that internet, the internet deals with subculture. Two, it's a product of age and a kind of, you know, varying firm to loose grasp on the topics. Certainly three years ago, it was a much more loose grasp and the discussions we heard on Saturday were very well read and kind of theoretically grounded and there was a lot of discussion of, uh, you know, complex ultra-left theory from the 70s. Um, the, the other thing is, I think this is perhaps one of the ways that just communities operate in corners of the internet that haven't been so thoroughly mined and optimized and you have a little bit of kind of creative autonomy. So do you feel like, um, going back to the jogging, like, do you feel like there was for you a direct, is there a direct line from the kinds of, like, not just sort of, like, the structure of engagement with, like, you know, teens and like young people on tumblr but also like the content that was circulating so i feel like in like the later sort of period of the jogging when like the um you know like submissions sort of opened up more and there was like more like the meme sort of took on a political turn in some ways and i guess could you talk about like what you saw happen there or even just like being in tum in the tumblr community at that moment and then like seeing how the post left has grown i guess maybe those are like more like i don't know if you would classify those as like the stuff that happen on later jogging as like left or right I don't know but like yeah anyway is there like a direct content line it was I mean it, it's funny because I hadn't I hadn't thought about that whole period of making art for for a really long time uh and then revisiting this stuff in the past few years I was like oh yeah there was actually there was a lot of the kind of kernel was was it was in there I recall one time just kind of going through the blog and looking at the the notes and the, the reblogs and all of the kind of ecosystem of Tumblr accounts that were, you know, disseminating the content. And the other stuff would be, it was just very clear that this was like a tween account and they could kind of take the formal strategies of the jogging of like putting a, uh, iPhone into a orange or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, they kind of got it 
they were able to reproduce it and then they could participate in it. And you would kind of from the outside just assume that these were people that shared your same kind of artistic understanding. And maybe I think the really interesting thing is that to a large degree they did, but didn't need kind of all of the all of the theory to lead up to it. Um, I was thinking of uh, s- some of the, the memes that we looked at that were kind of like Deleuze shitposting. And I was struck with this memory that I had completely forgotten, but uh, I, I made, you know, those like kind of laser belt buckles that you would see in Chinatown that had like an LED thing <laughs> and it would have your name and it would like kind of go around the belt. Yeah. Like I, I made one of those for probably like in 2012 that said like Jills Deleuze and Felix Guattari. <laughs> <laughs> I had totally forgotten about it, but I was like, oh, maybe I think this is part of why their content resonates with me because if I was their age, I'd be doing something similar. Yeah, totally. It's funny because I was just looking at um, the reconstruction we made of Petra Courtright's webcam for Net Art Anthology, and in it, she gets into like a little bit of a flame war with the um, with the guy that's using the handle Skating Learner, which <laughs> is I th- I think that that's someone that's like only now maybe maybe eighteen years old. So when this <laughs> conversation was happening, must have been nine, <laughs> and um, and she's like, yeah, you you know, she's like so vulgar on the internet, mm-hmm. and back then was even more so, I think. So she really went at into this like flame war with him and of course there was no way of knowing like from the youtube interface that this was like a nine-year-old that was being like <laughs> killed by petra but um yeah i mean it's interesting the way that like um yeah so much of internet culture is like extremely there's that like real youth voice and um i think like you know in terms of the work that you're doing now which is looking at you know young people and how they're expressing themselves politically i really feel that it's interesting because you have such a long-term view at this point, you know, not only following Instagram for all this time and now TikTok, but also like kind of going back to that earlier point. But maybe we should sort of locate our, our sort of conversation in the present day again. Um, the event that we held on Saturday brought together three of the figures that you sort of initially, I think, encountered doing the research for the PDF last year. Is that right? Uh, two of them were heavily featured in the, the PDF. And one of them I encountered afterwards. Yeah, and you ex- you explained that research in the um, in the event Saturday. But um, so you had kind of after the PDF, you did interviews with people that were kind of in in those communities, I think. And um, those were sort of the people that st- stuck out the most from the interview process, I think. Right. Yeah, I mean, there were a number of really compelling, really fascinating interviews. Uh, but I think the the way of selecting the participants was one. I mean, there were a number of people who were theoretically sound and incredibly intelligent and could kind of give you the, a two hour lecture on their own <laughs> without the rest of uh, everyone else there. But um, it's also kind of delegated in that the group that emerged that's documented in the politogram in the post left um, has kind of codified or crystallized into three distinct but largely overlapping groups and I tried to select a little bit of a cross-section for the the kind of different factions that that are working now and I mean many of them they have similar references they're they're kind of 
all equally interested in, in Bordiga, they're interested in Gilles Dove, they're interested in Baudrillard, um, and they kind of name them in, in a lot of their writing as well. But their posting style is different, the kind of the discords that they hang out with are dis- different, the kind of uh, partner groups, which is on Instagram when you make a post and you kind of in the caption refer to uh, you know suggested other accounts that you should follow if you're interested in this content. Those things are are kind of siloed off a little bit. But there is, I think we got on Saturday a real kind of general consensus that the transition to the new society is going to need to be maybe an inter- instantaneous transition, something that's going to happen very quickly because we are on some kind of a, maybe a carbon budget or, or a time limit. Yeah, I think the thing that the sort of, yeah, it was interesting on, on Saturday sort of here, what to me appeared to be a yeah sort of like massive sort of number of like similarities between the groups. I kind of went in expecting that they would offer like perhaps like conflicting you know visions or sort of like you know maybe like one that's like super nihilistic one, but ultimately it all was like you know it was cynical in a way. But at the same time, I think the emphasis on yeah like immediacy of trans- the transition and also the emphasis on emancipation and actually also like you know, whether or not it was stated directly, I think, like, humanism. I, th- I think, like, in one um, one of them actually directly was, like, you know, like, beware of anti-humanistic thought, which I thought mm. was interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I, I thought it was all, which I think made, to me, overall, sort of painted this, like, rather hopeful picture in comparison to a lot of the discourse that I think, like, maybe people in our age groups or, like, sort of in contemporary art are offering in a way. I think I think that's a really important point because the, I think my my largest fear in you know what would happen after this this rise of the post left online is that there was an opportunity for ideas like antinatalism and like deep green stuff that would frame humanity as like a virus on the earth or something like that that are really anti-humanist um, that it, there was an opportunity for those things to kind of to move in and just get locked into that kind of nihilist uh, frame of thinking. Thankfully, we've seen like a, a pretty big turn away from that stuff. Um, so I'm I'm very pleasantly surprised, and it has to some degree restored my faith in the younger generation. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that actually because um, in that in the text that was sort of calling on other teens on the net not to be anti-humanistic, I wondered. Mm-hmm how much that was responding to a strong anti-humanism that existed right. in other places, you know? Like there were, like the, uh, there is a lot of it online, but then that's rejected. Yeah, that's, That was my question. Right. I think when that started to rear its head was towards the dystopian forecasting where either the future is some kind of like Landian techno-pessimism, Internet of Things, planetary singularity that like terminator essentially or it's um extinction level event and uh, a return to nature before humans that there is something of a self-fulfilling prophecy where if you get locked into that kind of thinking then you probably don't post as frequently about it and you you tend to just log off but it was i think also we we do have to acknowledge that it was the kind of the hard work of certain, I call them like lighthouse figures in the community that kind of like forecast a way of thinking and then other people are drawn to it, that there were, you know, teenagers digging through theory, unearthing a type of politics that they thought could scale to the future. And in some way kind of 
recuperated or therapized um, or rehabilitated uh, people from kind of going off the, the deep end. Yeah, I thought that the way that that got phrased was re- was really good um, in the in the event, and I, I can see that as a reflection of work that others have done. The actual way it was written was, I understand you and I support you to a degree, and I want nothing more than to unequivocally say Godspeed and good luck to you. But I urge you to remember that behind every feature of human society, you may, regardless of the justifiability, wish to eliminate. Ultimately, there is still just nature and humans. To roughly quote a lyric from my favorite song by the Smiths, Cemetery Gates, which is itself derivative <laughs> of the 1942 play The Great Man Who Came to Dinner. <laughs> they are humans with loves hate and hates and passions just like yours. Warily keep these humans and humanity in general in your mind when you are tempted by anti-humanistic tendencies, radicalism, merely for the sake of radicalism and not for the sake of a commitment to human emancipation. I think something that was interesting in that or that that brings up for me too that was cool to see was sort of, or interesting phenomenon, maybe, maybe, I don't know if it's good or bad necessarily, but I think like the way in which because of the fact that some of these kids are like engaging with this theory in a sort of like self you know, they're navigating it on their own in large part and kind of like, you know, picking up, you know, certain texts and like then alongside other texts and then, you know, or even like one of them, you know, walked us through like the Situationist International and it was like so cool to just like hear someone just be like, and then, and like to see what they're picking up from those things. And I think that like, what's cool about, I think this idea of humanism in relationship to their thinking is that it's sort of because of that like choose your own adventure way it's sort of like doesn't have all the it's not shouldering the weight of the history of humanism and all the like you know in like western philosophy and like political theories and like all the things that you know have humanism has picked up along the way and like the sort of injustices and like bad faith like theory that you know or even like things like you know the family of man and sort of like how we've you know the sort of like actually narrow idea of the human that has been propagated over i think that they're like really talking about a generalized humanist perspective where it's like there are humans and there is nature and how do we like deal with that rather than like yeah humanism as like a um ideology or whatever and and i think that yeah the sort of freedom of thought comes probably probably from the fact that they're like you know buzzing through all these different like you know there, library stacks kind of like. that's I, I think that that's like that's su- super important it's, it's just kind of like generalized humanism because i think there's uh, a kind of potential like uh, intellectual and, and i guess political trap of like in this very pessimistic phase of the anthropocene that these um like a, a politics of de-anthropocentrification and and all of the the rest of like the heavy theory which like essentially amounts to a plan of like mulching the poor to power the internet of things <laughs> like that is not the kind of future <laughs> that they want to grow up into so yeah. um yeah it's like as as uh, he said um your place in struggle as a human subject is valid and that's yeah. I, I think just a yeah. really powerful thing to hear from a young person totally I was really fascinated by the explanation of Bordiga as a figure of note for this group. In particular, not so much because it was described as a product of the situation, in particular in the context of the Italian Communist Party and um, you know the sort of degradation of the Soviet project and the sort of official response to that, just the way that it was described. Like Bordiga was like this person that sort of went against the tide of history I was thinking about this figure and why it might resonate so much with this group of people who might be surrounded by a society that seems to be like moving headlong in one direction when they are really specifically advocating to move in a different direction. 
So they really identify with this sort of like naysayer figure that stands by their principles, despite, you know, the overwhelming like push in the other in the other way. And it was really interesting to hear Bertiga described in that way as like a inspiring figure as opposed to s- any specific content. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, I mean, I think there's there are some ways where like when you look at this from the outside, that uh, Bordiga's theory is very compelling because he kind of demands that there's no activism that you can get up to that will start the spark for revolution. So this is the kind of armchair Marxism, which is just (laughs) sitting back and waiting for emergent events to either be the kind of, I guess in this case, climate catastrophe or some kind of instantaneous revolution. So I think as a way of, without psychologizing them too much, uh, it's a way of kind of psychologically insulating yourself from the potential of failure, which has, I think, been like emotionally traumatic to many people who would consider themselves on the left or progressives, just the kind of um, difficulty in struggle and having so many obstacles against you. It's one, I think, it's a wonderful thing to see that they're reading theory so closely um, and that they have such a... um, a, a great historical lens to bring to it. I'm not especially sure if uh, it, it can s- scale to to meet the current <laughs> demands or the, the current crisis. I mean, I think I think it would Bordiga be... Bordiga in, in particular or just all, overall their theoretical, like, primer? Praxis. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. Mean, yeah. But for, for example, one of the tactics that did not come up at all was, you know the question of like a collective strike or any kind of labor tactic. Right. Nothing like that right. was mentioned in the context of like a nearly two hour discussion mm. of left politics, which I yeah. thought was like. Those are some of the most interesting things of what doesn't make it in. Yeah. You know, like no, no one brought up the Frankfurt School. No one brought up Gramsci. Gramsci. Right. <laughs> uh, there's just like certain things that like are missing from the picture. And that kind of tells you a lot about it. Like I think it, we open the discussion where we're, ask people to describe what the next 25 years would be like to forecast some some picture of the future. And no one wrote a short fiction piece. Everyone yeah. felt the need to explain how capitalism is driving the climate crisis. Well, right. with the strike but question, I wondered about, well, two things, I suppose. Like, at first I was like, well, being that they're between 16 and like 20 years old and maybe don't really work, they might. But, I, I didn't, but I, then I thought, well, with climate stuff, there was like, you know, the school things where kids were like, you know, we're not going to, you know, kids weren't going to go to school for the climate strike or whatever. But then I also wonder, and some, I wish someone had asked this, I guess, which maybe we could ask uh, our caller like later, but um, I guess the sort of place of strikes and like the sort of like cultural or like political imaginary in terms of like what people consider a strike now and like does a strike feel like a watered down sort of like liberal effort because of like the sort of ways that strikes have been mobilized or like protests and strikes and mobilized in the last like four years like in terms of like women's march or like you know even like the art strike and things like that that are kind of like strikeish, you know mm. well unions are certainly institutionalized and like in in this city they are you know part of like a democratic establishment in many ways um but at the same time the particular way in which i thought that conversation could have come up is sort of around, um, there's a conversation about things like wages for Facebook. So they don't have jobs in a formal, traditional sense, maybe. Or maybe they do, I, I don't know. But they, but certainly people of that age in general are underemployed, and, um, and that's an issue. But in terms of the larger conversations, you know, 
um, there's more and more theorizing about users themselves and the labor that they do and that having value. And, um, you know, none of those kinds of questions were addressed either. So like not, not a traditional strike and also not like a question of like the value of their labor in relation to the platforms that they inhabit. Um, although it was interesting, you know, to note that it seems like the kind of momentum has gone away from Politogram that now like whatever community was happening there has sort of run its course to a certain degree and moved moved in a different direction at this point. They're now um, joining real world organizations. So the ones that have made it through the past three years, all of the casual kind of shit posters have kind of been pruned away. Not that there aren't a lot of, you know, kind of outrageous antics that happen every day on Politogram. But if you've made it through this far, then you've kind of just by virtue of continuing to look at it every day, you've consumed a lot of theory. You have politics. The irony has kind of washed out. And um, they're, they're now making moves to, to, to join actual political groups. Mm-hmm. Um, I just w- wanted to, I think, quickly wanted to mention that maybe the absence of discussion of, of any kind of strike, I think they have a kind of a rhetorical switchback maybe built in here where if I can speak for them for a second it would be something similar to um, we don't want to like strike or protest for better working conditions we want to abolish work right 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 it's sort of uncompromising in that respect it's like that sort of like you know politic of like don't ask for what you think you can get but rather just like you know only push for what you would like yeah I I think they're very cautious of compromise because they see where compromise has has landed us well, I guess what I was going to say, this is like totally um, bringing something else in, but um, it reminded me, some of the stuff they were saying also reminded me of what someone said in the um, salon group dinner thing about abolition and sort of like not like, abolition as a sort of political program, not being like purely just like, yeah, like we got to close the prisons. And then like, you know, obviously opening up onto that question of like, well, what do you do when you just like close prisons? But rather starting from a position of thinking th- thinking from the position of a world where you don't need to have those institutions. And I thought about that a lot when sort of like that, um, I don't know, yeah, like with the, with the uh, what they offered at the event, just sort of like that it really felt like, especially the one that um, talked about like, yeah, sort of like immediacy of a transition and like joining um, like, you know, sort of like mutual aid groups and like arming oneself and all these things and sort of like that felt like it was very much like in line with just like a generalized like abolitionist perspective. And I thought that that was, but it's interesting also that in their thinking, I don't, that word doesn't really make its way into, I guess like a, I guess I don't like abolishing work. I guess like that, but like, I don't know, I guess I would be curious if I could ask them more questions, like sort of what they think about aligning themselves with an abolitionist sort of history and like uh, theoretical program. Well, luckily we have that opportunity now if, yeah. if our guest answers the phone. True. He had a really funny uh, comment on Saturday that Greta is the inverse of politogram. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like her theory is not good, but her heart's in the right place. And <laughs> politogram <laughs> is the like polar opposite where it's like they've got yeah. the perfect theory, but they're like <laughs> shithead. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Okay. Do we have the number? Oh, so this is um, the guest from Saturday who gave a micro lecture who was not connected with leftcom exactly and wasn't connected with the ultra left exactly. Um, so he's sort of general post-left and was involved in the Mike Gravel campaign and, yeah, is on fall break from high school. So let's, let's dial him in now. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Hey. 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 Is it working? 
It seems it like, like it is, it. yeah. All right, cool. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, of course. We're sitting in a funny place. <laughs> We're in a podcasting studio hidden in the back of a parking garage. It's quite cool there. It's pouring rain here today. Yeah, we're all a little sick and <laughs> like literally under the weather and yeah. soaking as we come in. <laughs> but we're excited to talk to you about um, the abolition of symbolic thought and other <laughs> topics raised in our event Saturday. We've just been sort of like talking about the general background of the project. Yeah, just um, thank you so much for taking the time. I guess that um, one of the interesting things that came out of the event for me was just... I kept kind of holding, trying to hold in my mind really um, sort of what it meant that platforms like Instagram had played such a big role in like shaping this community of politogram that you all kind of had come come through in different ways. And um, I, I wondered, I wanted to, I guess I wanted to like open up with your like really provocative idea that there's really no way through capitalism completely except for the abolition of symbolic thought or something like that. Um, could you kind of recap that idea for us a bit to, to get us started? Sure. Um, I guess my line of thought there is sort of, and this is something I've been thinking about a while, and this is building off sort of the idea of a lot of post-structuralist thinkers, is that in every idea is contained the opposite of that idea. And so when you have, when you have something like capitalism, like living in capitalism right now, of course, there's Marx's famous quote, he opens up the communist manifesto with it, but, you know, we're haunted by the specter not be true in something that was truly communist, like say something that uh, abolished commodity production or whatever, uh, you know, even if by these like weird left com standards, would, would that still not, like the capitalist stuff is still there. That very thought is still there. So what I'm thinking there is that can it really truly not be capitalist or something like that if there is still that seed, there's still that sort of haunt, you know, it's sort of the Viridian idea of chronology, which Mark Fisher and them have all, all built off of, and that's sort of just what I'm, what I'm sort of thinking of there. And as I said in the talk, I don't really think this is the abolition of symbolic thought is possible, but I think that if we were to call ourselves truly revolutionary, that would be the only option. And I think that it would, in a sense, be desirable. So, Can I, can I just jump in a, a little yeah. bit of a, a clarification for people who may not be familiar with the source material that's being referenced here? So my understanding of this phrase, the abolition of symbolic thought, comes from pretty deep into Anne Prim literature, um, sorry, I won't yeah. use acro- uh, abbreviations, <laughs> anarcho-primitivist literature. Uh, I think I first encountered that idea through John Zerzan, and this refers to a uh, stage of mediation between yourself and the world, that uh, indigenous peoples were immersed in the real, and that uh, the kind of even the, the plants you would harvest had, had a use value. Um, there wasn't this kind of mediation in the space between not just images, but uh, your kind of representation and and written law and uh, written written narratives that could not evolve through an oral tradition. So this um, and and tell me if I'm mischaracterizing it, but that was kind of what it immediately tagged for me with that idea of the abolition of symbolic thought. No, I think that's largely pretty accurate. Um, yeah, Zerzan was definitely one of the ones that uh, sort of got this from, I and mean, Kevin Tucker, of course, as well, another primitivist thinker who sort of talks about this a lot in his uh, his journal. But, um, yeah, I like to think of it sort of, in a sense of semiotics, I like to think we're sort of the abolition of the sign in a lot of ways. And it's just sort of directly via the reference, where you're not even really thinking about it via, like, a symbol. It's more just directly dealing with the physical. 
And of course, that 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 muddies up different things with spirituality, of course, with indigenous uh, cultures. But generally, I think I think that's the way to think about it. I feel like it also, or yeah, when you said that, it, for me, the thinker I'm most connected to was like Baudrillard and just like his like symbolic exchange stuff and like like kind of yeah like pre-capitalist like methods of exchange that don't yeah rely on like the yeah sort of like me yeah exactly what you're saying the mediation of like value through like a like a yeah sign or something i think i really um in reading your text and listening to you speak on saturday um i found myself wondering about this um the potential or what it would be like to be haunted by capitalism uh and you know table our pessimism for a second and say that, uh, you know, everything goes perfectly well with the Green New Deal and we're living in the utopian society of the future. And there is this kind of Pandora's box that once opened can't be closed in the same way that um, aspects of capitalist society are haunted by feudalism and which kind of rears its its ugly head in times of crisis, uh, that potentially the the positive vision of the future could be haunted by the the old trappings of of capitalism. So let, yeah. let's take a big step back before we get into that. We're, we <laughs> went right, I went right we for the right most complicated the thing because I've been sort of like thinking about it since Saturday. But you know, we just met you on Saturday, <laughs> and it was it was awesome because I had been texting with your mom for several several weeks to um, to make the arrangements for you to come up to New York. And um, yeah, I mean, I guess I guess you and met. You and Josh had had been in touch online for a while before that, um, but of course you are a high school student um, mm-hmm. and someone who studied an incredible amount of, um, for what it seems like is an incredible amount of political theory and um, and leftist thought. And yeah, so you were one of the speakers in our in our event Saturday. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that we wanted to continue the conversation with you just in terms of like so many interesting questions being raised and, and that sort of thing. But now before we get into more of those, like, you know, you're back in your hometown after um, after this whirlwind experience. How Like, how does it how does it feel like what is how is it settled in now, three days after you've kind of come to New York to participate? Was it? I think something that's really interesting that I've noticed as I got back from New York. And this is something I've noticed coming back from like bigger cities as well, because I live in a pretty rural area, um, is that. The conditions in which we live determine the ways we think a lot. And I think that me growing up in a more rural area, me pretty much living my entire life in the same place, that's allowed for me to become more open to sort of primitivist ideas and stuff like that. And I think in a lot of ways that's encouraged me and pushed me towards the sort of ideas by abolishing symbolic thought. But in terms of like how I'm actually doing, um, I'm doing pretty well. You know, it's kind of a, it's a it's an adjustment to make from going to, you know, we were talking about how every street in New York is like Broadway and is the biggest city near me. It's it's an adjustment to even spend a few days there and then we come back. I kind of miss it in a way. I think it's a really cool place. Um, yeah, New York is awesome, and I, I want to thank you all again for having me. I was curious. Um, so you, you're on break this week. You're not back in back in school, right? Or I'm on fall break. This week. Fall break. So have you, have you had a chance to like brag to people yet about it or? <laughs> um, I talked to some of my friends about it before the event happened, and they were all really excited. And But I'm definitely going to be talking to my teachers and stuff about it, honestly, just because it, it went smoother than I even expected. And I, <laughs> I, the conversation was even more productive than I hoped for. So I'm definitely going to be bragging about it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, it's funny because I had certainly never done an event like that at the museum before with um, just inviting some teenagers to share their notes on politics because we thought they were interesting, making interesting memes. <laughs> so, um, you know, I was anxious about what it would be like also. <laughs> and it's also funny because like so many of the new museum sort of like management staff kind of they kind of dropped by my desk Monday like oh how did how did your event go was it was it okay? you know like James trying to <laughs> make sure that it had been you know it was great like how generously you all sort of approached the topic and the weird context of like coming together but I I did sort of think that like maybe one of the interesting parts of why that event should have happened in that way is that is that you know these online spaces that we circulate in have such particular affordances um, and you know, to have the opportunity to kind of come together does have a different um, quality to it in terms of like how that can maybe reshape a conversation or, or a relationship or anything like that. And um, I mean, certainly for me to have the opportunity to meet all of you was like, you know, it was pretty, pretty profound experience, actually. Yeah, uh, very, very much so. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's a bit of a bonkers proposal, <laughs> I think, was the word uh, we used before. But um, I think it was really successful and it was a, a very transformative experience to hear to hear people speak on Saturday. Yeah. And to see like a bunch of like art people like, you know, 20, 30 something art people like fighting their way to the front to like shake hands with you guys was like <laughs> pretty cool. <laughs> like, I think people took a lot from it and people have been talking about it a lot since like just, yeah, like around town. Yeah. It was, it was super humbling in a lot of ways. Cause it's just like, little <laughs> well, me, like, you guys didn't expect, you know, it's just kind of weird to be tossed into it, but it's incredible. Definitely. But it is also like, it's just, one of the speakers was sort of like casting all these aspersions on generational analyses. And then there's also the, the kind of like the symbol of Greta, which we did discuss that kind of like makes this a weird moment where people are like wanting to hear from Generation Z and wanting young spokespeople. Um, and th it's easy to be sort of skeptical of that to say like, I mean, even though, you know, Greta is like specifically skeptical of that saying like, it's your job as the people with power and resources to make decisions. But I think there's a certain kind of clarity that all of you brought to your points, which is like, you know, even being able to describe some of these theories without the baggage of having, ha having like the people who have told them to you that are kind of in your mind as you th think about them or the professor that was advocating for the situationists or, you know, just having that kind of real clarity, like I'm coming to this fresh to take from it what I want which I think is really a, an autodidact's perspective on, on leftist thought. Um, that really brought up some surprising kind of um, ideas for me. And um, so that's sort of like the good part about how this political community has formed online. Um, can we talk about maybe some of the bad parts and also maybe why Politogram isn't as vibrant now as it was and, um, and yeah, where that conversation is now? Um. So I think a lot of the issue is that there's a point where you just meme too much, and the memes that once contained, like, they were kind of dumb, but they were funny, and they had, like, really, like, ideas behind it. It's just, like, the same, it just becomes, like, the same idea, like, being posted over and over again, or even more accurately, there isn't really much of an idea there anymore. It's just, like, it references some ideology, and it doesn't really talk about it, you know, like, I think memes 
you know, it's like Infowars. Like, it used to be there to spread information. Like, the alt-right would do it during the election. You know, then the left would do it and put it to try to, like, you know, it's trying to either, like, introduce people already in those spaces to new ideas or try to bring people who aren't already in those spaces into those spaces. But I think it got to a point where it just, like, no one was really interested in introducing people to new ideas. It was just, like, trying to joke about things that were already there. You know, it's like there's a point where it's just all humor and... That's the point where it's just discourse has just sort of died in those communities. And so those of us that were there, you know, for, for both, like, we wanted, like, the memes we thought were funny, but also we wanted to sort of talk about things seriously and, like, have, like, good faith discussions a lot of the time. Uh, it just it just doesn't really have the same magic it used to. Because a lot of those people, they just, we, we've just left because we, we don't want to be a part of a community that's just based around, like, dumb humor, you know? If I can just tack on one one other insight here, um, I I think that in times of intense pressure, you, you can you can kind of like force this evolutionary change in someone's in someone's thinking. So during 2016, when the Overton window was was widening, uh, we saw a lot of the kind of like young libertarian people on Politogram undergo this this transformation and just kind of come out with what had very likely been their latent politics all the time um, and then announce themselves to be fascists. But I, I, I wonder if we are, we're in kind of a lull at the moment because there doesn't seem to be immediate opportunity to shift the Overton window. I think as, as the debates kind of uh, pick up, as the kind of Democratic primary uh, like grows and kind of <laughs> burns even even hotter, um, I, I think we will see some kind of transformation. And we already saw some lines being drawn of people who were maybe uh, exhausted with electoralism and uh, would consider themselves part of the post-left. And then as Sanders announced his candidacy, uh, all of a sudden kind of like regained an interest in um, uh, electoral politics. There, There is also, I think we we have to mention that the stakes in these spaces has gotten so incredibly high because of so many examples of real-world acts of violence that either make reference to the memosphere or ideas encountered online through some other sphere. Well, I think that that, there is that really strange tension between memes which are pretty silly and then the extreme seriousness of what's discussed because... um, at the event itself, we handled that by at your suggestion, which was a good one. We had memes sort of playing on a loop at the start and end of the event um, with some Steve Reich um, composition accompanying it. And, um, you know, at the end of the event, people were like gathered around, like watching the loop. But there was a, a sort of anxiety on your part that people would be making some very sincere, heartfelt point and you'd and you might have on, on the slideshow something extremely silly um, being presented. But the thing is that even the memes themselves, while silly, also sort of like do have this kind of like dangerous status or something Um, in particular because, you know, they identify accounts as like having one set of beliefs or another, being part of one community or another. And they that can make, you know, it can make a user the target of certain kind of harassment or trolling. Um, And also, you know, we've seen how. Um, some of the violence that's happened, political violence that's happened, has been m- done by people that I've like referred to. Um, you know, mostly so far, what we've seen has been right wing violence, referring to right wing meme making as a s- source of ins- inspiration or something. Which makes me wonder, like, you know, people talk sort of in jest about the meme wars, but is there something to this idea? Like, there ha- there is a kind of 
battle for consciousness that's being waged online and the left needs to be a part of that process. This is sort of what you talked about with new models, Josh, when you had your podcast with them. Yeah, I mean, I think a major insight of that you can get from realizing just the, the age of um, many people who are consuming this content um, is that if they are really this young, as I believe most of them are, then there is a major opportunity to shift the way that they think. So counter messaging is tactically useful. There are kind of all of these other, all these other tactics and strategies that can be deployed on social media that just historically have been dominated by conspiracy theorists and, and, and far right guys. But it certainly can't hurt to build out a robust group of left-wing content producers to bring people in and kind of do political education. Um, not that that is by any means the solution for it, uh, but it does help to just kind of plant an early understanding that I think the more adventurous and more studious people on politogram um, self-educated because they couldn't find it elsewhere. Uh, so, so when I, I asked them, of who are your favorite kind of content producers on YouTube or whatever kind of, uh, you know, general like influencer account that you might follow on social media. The right wing guys all have kind of silly answers of like Paul Joseph Watson and, and um, all of the rest of those clowns. Um, but the left wing guys are, are kind of reading PDFs. Obviously, there is a uh, there's a degree of theorizing that happens on the left that does not happen on the right. But I, I do think that figures like um, Hassan Piker and ContraPoints um, are 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 helpful in in bringing people in on the early stages. I mean, maybe that maybe that's a question we could put to to you of like um, if you have any content producers you really like. Um, I still watch a lot of sort of I guess you I guess people would call them like left to bread to producers just because I think that they're like. All, most of, mostly they're funny, but like I was talking about before, a lot of it's just really information-based, and a lot of it introduces like, stuff to me that I didn't even know of. And the one that I've really been big on recently, and I'm, I'm, Josh, I'm sure you know, is uh, Cut Philosophy. Right, right. Yeah, just really good content. Even though really he is a humor-based, it's just like really direct, easy to understand, straightforward like, uh, explanations of a lot of like, post-modernist, post-structuralist stuff. Um, I also like H. Bomber Guy, one of the classic left tubers. You know, I still watch his videos quite a bit. Um, also, it's kind of interesting because a lot of you mentioned contrapoints, but like, there's been a big falling out of contrapoints in a lot of uh, quarters of the left, especially like among like uh, queer leftists, because of a lot of her takes recently have been sort of conservative aligned, and I'll remain neutral on that for now. But uh, I also think that this says something about just like the fragility of a lot of these personas, like. How, you know, people call it cancel culture. I think that's kind of a dumb term in a lot of ways. But it's just like, I think there is something to talking about how if you say like a, a few wrong things immediately, it's just like a lot of your content gets cast in a different light, you know. But that's not really to do with the question. Yeah, I don't really consume a lot of political memes nowadays. Like I still post them sometimes, but I'm not really into that. But mostly like you were talking about, it's just sort of like a lot of reading. It's mostly just like reading and watching uh, videos and p listening to podcasts and stuff, which sort of deal with the theory in a more direct way, you know? But, yeah. yeah, plenty of left podcasts, not a lot of left YouTube. Yeah. Maybe, maybe just, just to qualify, of like I'm, 
not trying to like take a political program out of ContraPoints videos, but as an exit ramp from a lot of people who are immersed in, in the right wing stuff, she does a good job of, of debunking and introducing them just to an, another potential path. Um, I, I think there's some content producers of like maybe Destiny filled this role at a certain point that just work to introduce other names into the algorithm. Uh, and, and part of my kind of like general proposal for this thing is kind of like using the inherent properties and structures of social media that can send people down a curious rabbit hole, but um, gets them interested in left wing theory. I also I wanted to ask you more about the Gravel campaign. Um, I have this meme in front of me that says ultra rare pick of leftcom engaging in praxis appears only once <laughs> in every 20,000 leftcom memes RT to bless your reading group. Um, and I think <laughs> that you engaged in praxis. Well, I guess you're not leftcom though, are you? What is you're sort of something you're non-aligned. I'm a I'm I am in agreement with a lot of leftcoms generally, but I don't like using the term because I think a lot of leftcoms are just pretentious, for lack of a better <laughs> word. So, but you so you um, mostly do reading, but then you were you did have some involvement with the Gravel campaign, and you talked about a bit about that in the event. But I was sort of curious, like, you know, what was involved? Were you part of like a Slack where you had to make decisions about? what policy positions or did you see how the policy positions were decided or is, is there anything we can hear about being in that process? Yeah. So, um, I guess I can just go ahead on real quick, like recap, like how I got into it first. Um, yeah. um so, uh, it actually, it was, I just sort of heard about Gravel, you know, just being involved in like online leftism. Like when it, I actually heard about him the night his Twitter account started up before he announced. And everyone was kind of freaking out because he was saying all this like really far left stuff. And everyone was like, "Whoa, what's happening?" So, so about a week after that, I heard that they were like trying to get like staff and stuff, and just, they were just hiring people to you know work, volunteers to do work for them. So I was just, I was already volunteering a bit for the Bernie campaign. I still am because you know I, I think electoralism has its use, and. So I volunteered for him because I was like, you know, I don't expect him to win. He doesn't even want to win. But if we get him on the debate stage, and that's like an exposure to farther left ideas than most American American people really have any familiarity with. And I think that's a good thing. So I uh, I started doing a canvassing forum here in Tennessee. Didn't really get a ton out of that, but I I think it was a worthwhile endeavor regardless. But there, were, there were a few people. Um I wanted to do phone banking, but we didn't end up ever setting up like a national network for that. Um, I did help with Paul. Help. We all sort of helped, like everyone who was in the Discord server, which is like the main hub for his campaign. We all helped decide policy positions. I pushed really heavily, since I'm indigenous, I pushed really heavily for indigenous uh, rights stuff. And also, I, I made sure that we sort of kept it on lock in terms of like economics. You know, I wanted to make sure you can't be far left, like everyone did in the campaign. And also, I helped write some of the like, actual policy positions out and to make it more clear and concise. And that was sort of my role within it. And my it probably was from about May to July. So about two months I was involved. And it seemed like you had a relatively positive, I guess, experience with that. I mean, it seemed like the main role of the campaign was to try to shift the Overton window. So it was sort of aligned with meme making as an activity in some way but um 
also very much a product of and taking place on the internet. When people look at the forthcoming election, I think on Rhizome we've had over the past couple of election cycles, like Obama has been called the social media president. You know, he had like this, he was like the first to have a real online grassroots campaign and then um, failed to bring that conversation into his presidency in any way, except for through like posting sometimes. And then 2016 was like really the, the meme making campaign in many ways, you know, the Bernie memes, but also I think that seeing what the right did during that campaign was like, that was like the time for that to happen. And I sort of feel like now all political organizing has gone into like Google Sheets and door knocking. And that's, that's like going to be <laughs> the theme of 2020 will be like all about having conversations with people. And it's like, a ch- it's like, a, it's like you'll have conversations in a room that's like a chat room, but it's actually a real, a real room where you chat. <laughs> um, Just to, I mean, to zoom out for one second and put like a, re- a really big frame on this, there's been a kind of a reversal of the narrative. Uh, I think w- when I first started getting involved with making art online, that was in the period of Occupy Wall Street and the Arab Spring, that kind of the intrinsic properties of these social media networks would allow people to gather, to um, build collectivities, and would kind of force some kind of revolutionary change, just uh, it, through the inertia of the, of the system itself. And then those obviously uh, did not pan out or in, in the way that people had hoped. And there's a complete kind of flip of the media narrative where now you can't hear about um, social media without like um, fake news and Cambridge Analytica and, um, and, and things like that nature. So the, if the popular mood has shifted, it does kind of make sense that maybe the canvassing and knocking on doors is the, uh, uh, the new chat room. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, Look at the Bernie campaign, for instance. Like most, if not, well, not all, but like, like a, like a vast majority of the stuff that he does and that the campaign does is like canvassing and phone banking. Like, it isn't really super online based. Like, they have an app, and all of the people I've talked to, like you might work in the Bernie campaign with me, like we don't really ever use that like organizing app that much. Yeah. Just, just because like the methods that we're using, they prove to be decently effective. Mm-hmm. It's more of a cellular operation. Um, but it's interesting about just to, going back to the affordance of, of platforms, because um, on Twitter, there was always this like thing of hashtag activism. Like People would be like, oh, it's just hashtag activism. It doesn't move off Twitter. But it's interesting because with Instagram, you don't even really have that. Like, There's kind of almost no way to build any sort of solidarity among a group of people, except for like relentless posting and kind of like the curiosity of users to find ideas that are along aligned with something that they're interested in um so it actually seems to me like instagram is actually a really difficult place in which to like gather a following um i seem to remember from the pdf that there was a conversation at one point in your original research in 2018 josh about like users not wanting to build like super big accounts is, is that yeah true? yeah like changing the name and stuff like that. well i think i think there's there's two sides of it so changing your account name deleting your account starting over once your ideas have changed refusing to use hashtags or geotags or other things that would kind of uh hyperlink you into the social media algorithm to spread your content one of the things that allowed them to kind of fly under the radar is that they didn't participate in it. They, they kind of evaded the data eye, I think is the best way to describe it. And that one kind of 
prevented anybody from coming in and kind of like building a wall around the commons or something like that. It allowed them to kind of continue doing it because it was from a data angle impenetrable. I wonder if it worked to their advantage in this specific case because they were able to have, you know, at this point, three to four years of distributing theory and ideas that would generally not be allowed on the platform. And they've brought in people that, as we saw on Saturday, who are now super studious and literate about the history of Marxism and the left. Uh, and they've uh, been able to form a small but uh, radical group of people. Yeah, and like building off of that, I think that Instagram might be the worst platform to radicalize someone via. But also that it also proves perfect for a more insular community. And like once you sort of once sort of clicks with you in a way, it it, it it clicks really well. If you're like the type of person that I think a lot of the people on Instagram and like theory Instagram or uh, like Twittergram, I think a lot of us tend to be a little more visual. And it just sort of helps, you know, because on something like Twitter, it's mainly not based around images. While on Instagram, like, it's based around images. So for a lot of people, it's just, like, the image just distracts. But I think for a very specific audience, it's sort of, like, you, the image and the caption are inseparable. And this is sort of getting into, like, I don't know, like, weird, like, communication media theory here. Oh, let's get into it. That's the, <laughs> that's the interesting like, thing. But um, it's just, like, you know... I'm really tempted to analyze it via the festival as I always say. It's just sort of like when you when you can attach like an obvious like image to the caption to what's being said, it becomes all the more easy to like internalize and sort of understand in a lot in a lot of ways. I, you know, we can go into how to board the situation is whoever, whatever, talk about how that's bad. But I think it has use here. And I think I think it's really been utilized pretty well. But for most people it just doesn't work and you know, it's just the image just serves as a distraction most of the time. Because you can write a big, you know, it's a, it's a meme on, on Twittergram, right? Someone posts a meme and they write this, like, huge, long essay in the caption. No one reads it. Because no one's going to waste their time reading it when it's just, like, a meme there. Or no one's going to waste their time reading it, like, when you're, like, a 17-year-old on social media. You know, it's just... Well, I I did. <laughs> I wasted a lot. Of, and I, don't, I don't consider wasted time, but I consumed... Thousands of hours of it, and I, I was very interested. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I think there is uh, a certain type of uh, flexibility or maybe, maybe creative latitude, you could call it, in posting a m image versus the text where you can kind of like pepper in these ideas and not have to really explicitly explain them in a, in a kind of a paragraph like on Twitter. Um, you can just kind of hypothetically propose these relationships and play with variables more easily. And, um, you know, people scroll past it. Maybe they, they uh, pick a beef in the comments. But it seemed that the, the kind of barriers to entry theory-wise were lower on Instagram than they were on Twitter. I mean, there's definitely in your folder of choice memes, there's definitely plenty that have very little text. Here we have the Titanic sinking and it's labeled the left. That's already pretty, <laughs> pretty self-explanatory. And then there's different lifeboats with post-left, critical self-theory, anti-civ, and nihilism that are all working on in triumph, I guess. And then, But on the other hand, you also have a meme that illustrates this criticism. We have um, kind of two images. On the, the one on the left is labeled left-com memes, and it has just a wall of text. <laughs> and then the, on the right, it says, on the right, tinky memes. And it says, when you kill kulaks. And then it's like a pizza, or no, it's a communist <laughs> Soviet flag giving the thumbs up. 
with sunglasses on, and then it says LMAO bottom text. <laughs> Just like, that's not even needed. So, <laughs> um, so yes, brevity is sometimes a virtue, um, but definitely, I mean, the way that these memes, I think in a lot of cases seem to operate is that they like reinforce you for being someone who knows who like Bordega is or being someone yeah, who knows relatability. about egoism. And <laughs> <laughs> who was it who hates Althusser? Uh, I think every, everyone <laughs> was the answer. The um, OJ of critical theory. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just in terms of like continuing the pl- like the platform discussion, be- because um, so it's interesting, like Politogram turned out to be a good way to form insular communities. Um, even like maybe as a result of how hard it is to sort of organize or radicalize on Instagram, which is really interesting. Um, but that, you know, in itself is kind of run its course. And, you know, Interestingly, like Josh has been doing all this research on TikTok, which um, is has this kind of like quite chilling feeling of like people performing these rote tasks as part of this faceless mass, um, interpolated in a different way. Sorry again, um, but you know, I, I because you uh, can speak for the youth, <laughs> I was sort of wondering if there are like other conversations that are happening in a more insular way. Maybe like I was sort of thinking about how TikTok might be the kind of like opposite of Fortnite in some level like tiktok being a place where you kind of can't communicate with your friends where you're like in this like big faceless group whereas Fortnite is this place where you might have a more specific identity as part of a a collective that you understand having a kind of purpose or something and whether you know there is some potential for political conversation in those spaces or if there's nowhere that conversation's happening or or if it's just happening in the in the actual rooms instead of the virtual rooms or something. Yeah. Um, so with something like TikTok, let me say first of all that that app scares like scares me a lot. Like, <laughs> like a lot of the reasons like you're laying out, like it's just something about it feels like so distant. But I think in a lot of ways, when it comes to like political conversations among you know the quote unquote youth, a lot of it's just it's been internalized very much so. Where it's just like political humor, we don't even really recognize it as political humor a lot of us. It's just sort of like a new level of humor. Because I think, you know, there used to be like, you know, that feminist slogan like the 50s and 60s, like the personal is political. And then it, that evolved in like everything is political. Some people like, even though I'm about to lay out, still say it isn't. But I think every single, not every single, but like a, like a good chunk of Gen Z people, especially Gen Z people who are involved in, like, meme culture, we sort of internally recognize that everything is political. And so, like, political media just sort of fade into the background because out of necessity, you know, growing up in such turbulent political times, I don't think it's really a stretch to say that it's a lot more turbulent than I think previous decades have been. You know, I, I think that just out of necessity, it's sort of political conversations, they become obscured and they become place by the sort of humor about it but then that humor just went to the other humor so we don't really have a direct political discussion going on about it it's just like in the mainstream here it's just like a couple layers away so i think a lot of the political discussion that's going on like straightforwardly it is happening in these sort of more like instagram you know what's going on in the group chats but in terms of these broader platforms there's definitely a political element but the political element is in a sense, unrealized. And can I just uh, throw in something about um, the kind of how 
insular politogram was, how difficult it was to find. Um, when I first wrote about TikTok in November, December of 2018, the platform was very different. And forgive this like terribly clumsy and inaccurate analogy, but I kind of like describe it as a, a period of primitive accumulation on a social media platform. The TikTok at that time had not been properly optimized and in its period of kind of viral growth and explosion, there was so much data collected that the financial engines behind it realized that if we change the platform in, you know, A, B, and C different ways, we can open up X billion dollars worth of influencer revenue. So what happened is that because TikTok was so easy to find of just opening the app and you could see the duet chain, which was this kind of Marxist dialectic of individual autonomy within collectivity, potentially. Um, you scroll through it for three hours now and you can't find a duet chain. So the thing that allowed Politogram to radicalize people was because it was difficult to find. TikTok being accessible ruined the kind of progressive potentials of the platform. Because the platform identified that happening and sort of like edited it's, it out. Exactly. Yeah. So, so Politogram had, whether it knows it or not, built in all of these walls around itself so that, you know, people couldn't come in, monetize, optimize, and, and, and well, tweak the way so that with, they were relating. So with TikTok, are you saying that the platform actively, like with the duet chain thing, like the algorithm was edited or it was shifted such that you couldn't find that or that it just happened there was so, it became, there was so much content because it boomed so much that then it was hard to find uh i i wouldn't be able to tell you what the steering decision Fair. was but having i mean my engagement with tiktok will be like i'll sit for you know three hours <laughs> to you know I, I did that on a live stream a few yeah. times like yeah. people people know um <laughs> now now it's more difficult to to go through it um but I mean, I'd, I'd be up all night sometimes just like yeah. posting uh, TikTok stories and th going through it now. If you're a kind of influencer account, if you're live streaming, your videos are prioritized right, in the for, right, on the right. For You page. There's all everything is linked into different kind of uh, social media platforms. Um, it, it's completely, completely different uh, from from what it was, I guess. Uh, I mean, um, almost a year ago now. Um, but it was also kind of the largest kind of viral explosion explosion for a new platform too. Right, right. Um, so it's it's a bit of a kind of unique case. The other thing maybe to mention is that um, the group chats that have emerged, which were always active on Politogram, and I, I must assume across most of Gen Z social media, but um, they'll be you know something almost akin to a Discord server of a hundred people in a group chat that just goes all day, like around the clock. And I, I think a part of the kind of crackdown on a kind of content moderation level for the more edgy posts, people kind of just got a little bit more siloed off into their communities. Um, but I think that the, the group chat has uh, replaced a lot of what Discord did, um, I guess similar to the way that Instagram kind of added stories and people moved out of Snapchat and back into Instagram. It's it's maybe a similar thing. Yeah, I mean, when I was I mean when I was first in Politogram, and actually let me just set this up because this is helping me in funny to you, is that I mean I fell into Politogram completely by accident because I made an account called Young Left Anarchist when I was thirteen, and I meant that entirely for my IRL friends. Like my like I meant that just to like try to like post political memes I found on Reddit, and I like, try to push my like uh, my closer friends like in real life 
further west. And then next thing I knew, I had like a Twitter account following me, so I followed them back. And I went through their following, and I like it's like discovering this whole new world. And you're like, whoa! Because there's this there's this like little like subterranean community of just like like 13 to 17 year old leftists and like anarchists. And you know, this is right before the election. And I kind of realized that Trump was going to win. So you know, that's when things started taking off. I joined during like the first really big boom of Twitter, I'd say. Maybe the second, I don't, I'm not sure, like right after the inception. But I mean, and when I first got into it, it was via a group chat pretty much. Because I got added to a group chat like probably my second night ever, like being involved in that community. You know, and so that's where I, I, I think that, you know, I tend to have a pretty, uh, I wouldn't say cynical view, but I guess more negative view than a lot of people would about Portogram, especially those who are involved in it. But I think a lot of, like, really good theory happens in a lot of these group chats. Like, I have seen ideas mentioned there that I have never seen mentioned in any theory before that I think have a lot of use. And I think in a lot of ways, it's like, when people talk about Marx, you know, he, he's not applicable to, to, like, the modern days. And well, what is applicable to modern day? I mean, look towards the youth, look to the people who are involved in social media. Look towards the people who are involved in, like, the, uh, the certain music communications that are, like, like in deep in that, but also just, like, sort of steeped in this, uh, this older left theory as well. You know, and then that really comes, that really creates, I think, some interesting mixtures. But I think in a lot of ways are really pragmatic, you know, where it's very applicable to what we're talking about today. And, of course, we saw that on the panel, you know. It, that's actually a good point for me to raise something, which is that I, f- I did feel that all of you had a very pragmatic relationship with the internet. Um, you know, for as a Gen Xer that's like obsessed with the internet, I felt like that kind of gave the internet more credit than it w- deserved on some level. Um, but um, but the kind of group that wasn't represented that's been figured heavily in Josh's like conversations is um, the unconditional accelerationist sort of wing, and. Um, I think that, you know, ideas about like the internet constructing like a new subject that's not just the human subject that we talked about in the panel, but instead like this new technological subject that is brought into being through this new apparatus, this new networked system. I feel like that vision of the human category under stress is more their focus. And um, so as a result of that new focus, I think they place like a great deal more emphasis on the internet not as just a tool for, you know, kind of building community, building dialogue, but instead to like kind of bring about like a revolution in what we think of as like the subject or consciousness as a whole. There was actually like a big text that just got posted last night that maybe we can, yeah, maybe almost, we can refer to. Almost 13,000 words. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had a chance wow. to go through all of it um, yet, but I think, I think very likely we will get something uh, to online publish from them. You had um, spent kind of a bit of time exploring these ideas and you kind of, I guess, moved out of it. Uh, But if you would maybe, for people who aren't familiar, give us a little bit of a description of what kind of UAC politogram and UAC social media is like. Um, okay, I'm thankful you didn't try. I'm thankful you didn't say for me to like try to explain the ideas behind it because I don't even <laughs> think the people involved in the community know what that is. But, um, oh, um, sick burn! <laughs> I mean, the community itself—it's very. It reminds me a lot of. I think it's where a lot of like the public leftists went. Obviously, 
and you describe this in the in the PDF, you know, where it's just like that was sort of like the logical progression from like you know this like sort of really radical nihilism, and also I I call it unradical in a sense, but whatever. Um, um, and so in that way, I think it keeps a lot of just the tendency to just meme everything as hard as you can. And, you know, make all these, like, weird, like, memes about Nick Land, the uh, Cybernetic Culture Research Unit, like, Sadie Plant, all this. But never really discuss the ideas super directly. You don't really see anyone writing essays on UAC. I mean, you might see it sometimes, but, like, compared to, I'd say, a lot of the left community, which isn't too much bigger. Like, it's definitely bigger, but not, like, a ton on, on Twittergram nowadays. Like, the, the amount of essays on the left-com side versus, like, the UAC side is astounding. And I think it's just because, in a lot of ways, no one really knows what UAC is. It's just sort of like a fancy sort of nihilism. And I think it I think it acts as, like, a cop-out. You know, it's just like... I, I sort of touched on this in the panel where it's just like, okay, well, you know, these, these political issues are really deep. Like, they're really difficult to deal with. Uh, fuck it, just accelerate it. You know, it's just like... Well, I mean, just, I think... If you if you look at it from the outside or as as an adult outside observer, I, I do see kind of two ways of confronting the difficulty of political struggle on such a tight time frame where you have one group that is advocating for, you know, the kind of communization theory that communism is not a progression. It's this instantaneous transition. And then the UAC guys have, have also kind of equally are um, not interested in political struggle or feel that it is hopeless. And they want to, ex- they look for some tendency within the existing, within existing social reality to accelerate. And then that becomes the seed for the new reality. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that the ones that are like into someone like Mark Fisher or like the CCRU definitely have more of that. But the people who idolize like Nick Land and sort of his cabal a lot, like the RX type people, I think it's definitely more just like a fancy sort of cop out where it's just like, we don't really know what to do here. We don't really know how to deal with the issues. So we're just kind of like speed everything up, keep doing what we're doing on like a higher level with hope that something comes of it or like, maintain that nihilism and pessimism about it and then accept that. And I think, you know, I'm not meaning to discount the theory there because I think there's a lot of, like, salience to what they're saying. Can I, I, I just, I do feel the need to throw in um, one kind of important roadmap here where in these spaces where there's a lot of fringe ideas circulating at the same time, it becomes very difficult, especially for young people, to disentangle what is good theory and what is bad theory. Like what kind of theory could stand up to peer review and what kind of theory would not pass a PhD dissertation or or whatnot, not because the institution was corrupt, but because it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So for a lot of people... Nick Land sounds like this, you know, scholarly intellectual argument. And it's really kind of like, you know, Deleuze poetry. There's not a political program that you can extrapolate from it. Um, maybe it starts some creative juices for, for artists who are making trippy images or something. But um, part of the kind of nonsensical or fringe stuff that circulates with real political theory all gets baked in together and, and um, 
I mean, yeah, yeah. Sorry. It's especially I, it's, confusing because Nick Lind was a co-founder of the CCRU, which we just mentioned as the good accelerationism. But right. I mean, I think that the tricky thing is that we have seen that Nick Land, it is possible to extrapolate a political program, but that it ends in like, you know, Moldbug's defense of slavery and like embrace of like monarchic like well, micronations and stuff. I think that's something that, I mean, have, having been someone who's been swayed by uh, some of Nick Land's or having you know, dabbled in myself, I think that the issue also comes up in this sort of translation of what really was written as like theory fiction in large part and like sort of he like consciously for like large part, like larger portion of that early writing was writing in a mode that was not necessarily meant to be like programmatic, but then has been mapped onto politics in a programmatic way. And so I think like, like I think like there are probably, there's a, probably a plethora of ways one could extrapolate a, a political program from early land but the one that is the most robust is Moldbug, and I think that that, but I don't think it, like, I'm not saying that land is, like, good, but I think that it is not meant to be used that way, much like, you know, if you read, like, Kodwo Oshun, like, early writing, like, that's, like, not a theory, a real theory of, like, electronic music, it's, like, a theory fiction, and I think that's, like, yeah, there's a weird miss. I mean, I agree that, that yeah, to use Nick Lynn programmatically, especially the early stuff, is, I think, a bad faith gesture. Right, 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 yeah. Yeah. You've also kind of you've described here a, um, what I would call a radicalization funnel, where people get brought in by shitposting memes and theory fiction mm-hmm. and stuff that doesn't really have hi- any high stakes in politics. And right. then through that, you discover Moldbug, and then you discover how Moldbug reinvented the Covenant community uh, ideas from Hans Hermann Hoppe, mm-hmm. who spent years hosting libertarian economic seminars with exclusively white supremacist lecturers, and now just four links in the chain. Mm-hmm. You're you're in the hard stuff through the yeah. you know fiction. I think also this fiction thing. I mean, it was interesting earlier. I guess before we were on the phone with you, um, Michael brought up that it was interesting that no one wrote like, you know, or maybe maybe Josh you said it, but like no one wrote like yeah like a short fiction about the future. But it is interesting thinking about the role of fiction in in politogram and like maybe like that there is like a sort of like fictionalizing like or theory fiction thing going on with the meme making and then now like coming to the museum like that was like those the offerings everyone had were like kind of, I guess, like the more politically programmatic like outgrowths from like a mm. theory fictional gesture. Well, it's interesting to glimpse the dystopian imagination within these memes because for the most part, there's not a lot of space for imagination because it's suppressing the immediate reality. But then you have then you have memes, what if we kissed in the rubble of an ICE detention center? And, <laughs> um, and you know, there's, I think that like there's a value in trying to imagine the awful future that is very likely to unfold. And um and so you do see glimpses of that in the memes, so they do serve like a role of speculation, which I think it felt kind of sad that that was so missing on some level. Um, yeah, but it's, yeah. Well, you mentioned actually in you know, the you mentioned the importance of fiction um, as part of your discussion, right? Yeah, um, I think that you know you were talking about you were talking about um, sort of land being used for artistically. And I think that's definitely true, and I definitely agree. But I also think that has a translation over into sort of theory, you know. That's an, I mean, I don't really like even the term theory fiction, because I think all fiction, in a way, contains its own theory that can be utilized. In the mm-hmm. same way that I think most, if not all, art in, inherently has a sort of theory to it that has a sort of political translation, you know. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so a lot of what I have been inspired by recently isn't necessarily overtly super political theory. Like, you know, I mentioned, like, two novels, you know, very famous sort of uh, pretentious art school novels, but regardless, two ones I've been inspired by recently, you know, 
Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon and uh, Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. Like, I think, I think in a lot of ways, one acts as a revision of the past and to sort of expose sort of the ways in which uh, truth and ideas, whatever can be called either of those, uh, they get distorted by, you know, power, which is a very simple concept, but I think that having a novel like that, and of course it isn't the only one that does that, I think it, it displays it pretty perfectly in a pretty uh, in a pretty salient manner. But also, mm-hmm. you know, with Gravity's Rainbow, you have you've a vision of a sort of capitalist or post-capitalist future in which things have gone wrong. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's become such a big novel, especially among, like, university kids, is that, like, it, it really appeals, you know, what you call the dystopian imagination. So I think that literature and fiction, this sort of thing, I think that in a lot of ways, it's the new frontier for a lot of younger political thought, because I think there's a lot of truth to what you're talking about with memes being a way of sort of visualizing the future, you know, and, and a lot of it being so heavily dystopian. It, it's it's like memes have become have sort of replaced writing novels or writing short stories, you know. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. It's been uh, it's been an education. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Bye. Thank you. All right. Thank you all. Bye. Bye. Watch out on the Rhizome blog for the micro lectures from our young uh, leftist thinkers. It's part of our InfoWars research program, which explores new forms of radical political thought emerging online. Supported by Seth Stolman and the Stolman Collection. Thanks, everybody.